everyone, and welcome back to Season 3 of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we I mean I've got a new co-host, and that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for Season 3 to be a consistent voice and having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners and all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcasts look longer this season, and it's not because the the interviews are any longer than they have been in the past, but actually Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. Well, hey, and welcome to Everyday Theology. Uh, My name is Aaron again. I'm back with my co-host, Chris, after his week absence that I felt terrible about uh, calling him out on. If you wonder what I mean by that, go listen to the last episode and you'll see me making a uh, jerk of myself in front of everyone. Um, but today we have a, a guest, a friend of Chris's. His name is Jordan Wood, or I should say Dr. Jordan Wood. Um, I don't know. I'll have to ask, are you uh, a reverend anywhere? No, I'm not. Oh, otherwise I was going to call you Reverend Dr. Jordan Wood. But but Chris, if you wouldn't mind introducing uh, Jordan and yeah, we'll we'll kick it off. Yeah. Jordan, thank you for being with us. Excited to have this conversation with you. The theme, of course, for this season in the podcast is friendships, theological friendships, conversation with friends about theology. And I really wanted to have the chance to follow up with you about some of our conversations with Maximus, and this is a good venue for it. So just so our leader, our, I keep saying the readers, our listeners can kind of know the Dr. Jordan Wood. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your story, what your background is, where you're attending church now, how this thesis came about, this dissertation, and then we'll do a deep dive on Maximus. But first of all, let's, let's just hear a little bit about you. Sure. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me on uh, the podcast. Please call me Jordan. <laughs> no need for doctor. Uh, my kids don't respect the title, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my you're kids not, refer to you're not a real doctor. You're not a doctor. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You know? 
so anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm Jordan Wood. I, uh, I was actually raised in the, um, what's called sometimes the Stone Campbell movement or the restoration movement. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that, Disciples of Christ. There's Christian churches, Churches of Christ. Um, and actually, mo- my whole family is still in that tradition, and several of them are ministers and so on. So I was raised in that that tradition, which is a heavy emphasis, almost utterly exclusive emphasis on the Bible. Very little attention paid to, like, say, church history or tradition. Um and I went to, uh, as an undergrad, I went to a Bible college planning to become ordained in that tradition. Uh, and basically, while I was there, I, well, I had questions. <laughs> so uh, mainly, actually, my foray into, like, I would, I would say maybe the greater Christian tradition, because I really knew nothing about it uh, up until then, was, was asking questions about how Christians have read Scripture and why it was that it seemed like for quite a long time, at least a pretty noticeable contingent in the Christian tradition did not read and approach scripture the way I was being taught um, to do. So it was sort of flagged. And of course, one of the names thrown out there is this guy named Origin. Like, wow, if I was a rapper, I'd definitely be called Origin. And a heretic. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I like origin, so maybe I'm the uh, heretic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, uh, sadly, his name does appear in 553, but um, you know, well, we'll we'll table that. But let's just say that I I'm with Saint Gregory of Nazianzus, who calls origin the whetstone of us all, the foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had so, not heard that before, but I'm going to steal it. Thank you're you. going to yeah, steal Luke, it, yes. <laughs> Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson, I was in conversation, with, and I don't know that he just said it to me. I mean, this may be something he says all the time, but I was at Emory, and we were having lunch, and Luke Timothy Johnson said, I would rather be wrong with origin than right with anyone else, right? So, <laughs> yeah. like, even if he is, like, he, I want to err on the side of that's a strong statement, actually. Yeah. I, I both enjoy it. I, this is a stupid, really does not matter a conversation at all. One of my master's, in one of my master's degrees, I wrote on how Origin wasn't a heretic because I was so angry at people who called him one. And that, now I think back and I go, you know, I was just that angry person on the keyboard. Stop calling him a heretic. Thank you. Like, well, it's, I mean, it's quite a testimony to his... I don't know. I mean, he, you know, everyone was using, we all know, like everyone was using origin in pretty much every way. Even Jerome, who did a 180 on origin in the middle of his life. Um, you know, he had before written letters to even the Pope's committing origins work. And then of course does a 180 later when he gets some pressure from the Episcopal or Episcopate at um, Jerusalem. And um, even he's still just straight up taking origins. <laughs> <laughs> work <laughs> without mentioning it and if we all know this goes on forever like the 20th century in a lot of ways that it was a sort of revival of modern scholarship on origin but um that had been going on for quite a long time anyway so i heard this guy's name origin and of course you know that associated with like allegorical interpretation figurative interpretation scripture whatever and so i went on to do a master's degree actually in historical theology and i wrote a thesis on origin first and I, I did it with a, um, an origin scholar, Peter Martins at SLU, St. Louis University. And uh, and so that kind of opened me up to quite a bit more. I mean, I, I, that was extremely like existential, <laughs> like 
like not always the case in, in the academy, but I really did go on to that master's with a question that I wanted to personally resolve, which is why did why did Christians feel justified theologically in reading scripture non-literally? And sometimes like significantly so. We all are aware, right? There's there, there's differences in some figures, even in the traditional pushback, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted to know, like in particular, what it became was why did Origin think he could do this? Hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's what I wrote on. And that was like ended up being like a hundred page thesis, um, which I whittled down to like twenty-five pages for for an article. <laughs> but um that that um that kind of opened up the whole I, w- I guess I would call the Alexandrian tradition in Christian history, and so that leads to later on. I I went to Boston College, and I actually went there planning on write on uh, writing a dissertation on Saint Gregory of Nyssa, who is sort of the next would be like if you're in the Alexandrian tradition, people influenced by Origin. Uh, but you don't want to be called a heretic. You go to Saint Gregory. <laughs> Saint Gregory. <laughs> Saint Gregory. You know, the, the, the Seventh Ecumenical Council calls Saint Gregory the father of the fathers. So let's let's go with him. So, uh, and I was influenced by you know authors like David Bentley Hart, John Bear, some other people that um, you know make heavy use of Gregory. But within, I, I show up at Boston College. I told the story elsewhere, but uh, I showed up there. Basically, through a lot of mishaps, I end up in this course because I have no other option, really, and I actually kind of barely made it in to the registration. I end up in this course on St. Maximus the Confessor, taught not at Boston College, but over at uh, Holy Cross Hellenic College by Father Maximus Constance, who's one of Maximus's, I think, best and main translators hmm. into English today. And he had just published his, his English translation of what's a, what, a work called The Ambiguo, which we'll talk about later. Um, and it was just a class on that. And so I, basically within two weeks, <laughs> I was, I was captivated. Yeah. Uh, and so Maximus's way of thinking about God, about Christ, the world, the spiritual life, uh, uh prayer, everything really just, it, it took me in. And so I pretty much knew within two weeks that I was going to change and write on him. And that's what I did. Um, meanwhile, while I was in Boston, I, I became Catholic. And so I've been Catholic, I guess that would have been, what, seven or eight years. Um, and I'm Roman Catholic right now. Let's just say I, well, you can tell even from this autobiographical sort of section here, I've kind of always been drawn eastward. Mm-hmm. I like Rowan Williams and perpetually in winter looking eastward. <laughs> His new book. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, let, before, before you go on, because I want to I hear what comes next, Say say a little bit about the what was it in that class on maximus that that hooked you was there a moment where you're reading maximus i mean i'd love to hear that like what was the that particular moment do you think yeah i would i would say basically there are two but they have the same theme uh one within i think within a month we had we had to write a um a short little paper for father maximus (laughs) not okay different maximus is here but (laughs) Father uh, Maximus Constance, we had to we had to write a, a short paper just explaining what's known as Maximus's doctrine of the logi or the logoi or the principles of the world. Hmm. Uh, it was just an exposition. It was like, hey, just take five to seven pages, kind of get straight because this is central to this whole thought, and we'll get into that later about kind of why it is and how it works. But that was it. It was a really great exercise, obviously. And what when I was struggling through that, um, I just basically was 
I was kind of captivated both by how different it was and a lot of the ways I've heard even other uh, church fathers and so on speak about these issues about God's relation to the world and how that relates to Christ. But also I just, I was extremely taken by how, how, uh, I don't know if systematics right word or consistently uh, this whole kind of cons- this integral vision shows up throughout all of Maxwell's works. And, uh, um, you know, we can talk about it later, but Max has a lot of different sorts of works, different genres as, as with a lot of the fathers. Right. And so there, there is kind of a sense and people kind of like them or don't like them for that reason. They'll want to go back to the church fathers because um, there's something like a vivifying fresh rig, uh, like vigor to them. It's very occasional. I'm, I'm actually in the middle of, translating about 49 of Maximus's letters. So a lot of his work, like he's writing letters and uh, in response to specific questions that people he knows ask him, they come to him and say, can you explain this text of scripture or this passage in the fathers? So, so you would think it's sort of fragmented. Like that's the, that's the, uh, the body of work we have from Maximus is just sort of fragmented, very different, but this vision, this integral vision, which I, which, which really caught me is so consistent and it's so it's so even down to the detail, like when it's applied that I hadn't since origin really read somebody who who had that sort of uh, integrating power or capacity. So that assignment, the, the what does he mean by the, the, the logo or the logi of, of, of the world, the principles of the world by which God created all things? And how does that rate to relate to the logos, the word of God? uh, incarnate that was probably one thing the other moment i'll just briefly mention is like ambiguum 10 we did several classes on that text because it's very long it's basically on the doctrine of theosis deification the stuff that maximus says about the deified person i was like is he serious (laughs) and that's that's really that's i mean you know he's talking about melchizedek and it's like you know he cites those few verses but it's like he was a uh, melchizedek was without generation uh you know his father you know, no one and he of course takes that in the most obvious sense which is just as god is without principle and the creator and uncreated uh so is melchizedek <laughs> so huh. uh, it's melchizedek without generation doesn't mean like you don't know his you know you don't get a um a family tree theology yeah yeah, yeah it's it's a he actually becomes, this is paradoxical, but intentional. He becomes without origin, without beginning, which hmm. elsewhere Maximus always reserves for the divinity itself. That's an essential hmm. attribute of, of God without origin. And so um, anyway, so I, so that's, that's the theme, like really the theme uniting my reading of Maximus, and, and we'll get into the details of that later, is... Does Maximus really mean what he's saying when he says these yeah, things? Yeah. Or is this, as one author once put it, hyperbolic doxology? Hmm. You know, just very, very sort of, uh, you know, uh, ornamental and extremely expressive and effusion of poetic imagery or something like that. And I basically so came is to, it? No, I, I, yeah. My, okay. my, my basic view was actually... There's a, there's an extremely rigorous lo- uh, logic and un- metaphysics even under underlying all of this, so that what he says is necessarily true, like in his own right in his own system. So that's basically when I when I went to write the dissertation, which is now the book, uh, I try to lay out lay out what that is and how 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 I see it working. Yeah. So, so let, let me go ahead, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, let me let me ask because I want to take a step back. And kind of just ask this question for anyone listening who 
doesn't know Maximus or some of the early church mm-hmm. fathers that we've kind of, you know, joked about and then also praised, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you can say, okay, you kind of told us why you were you were drawn yeah. to Maximus, but if you can put that into like a really basic sense, who is Maximus and, and what has he said that is that is different than what someone who is going to say, well, I'm an Orthodox Christian or I, you know, I'm evangelical. Maybe they might use that word instead of Orthodox anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, What might he say that would challenge kind of in a basic level, the way that we would perceive theology in the 21st century in the West? Oh, that's a great question. There's probably a lot of answers, but I just real quick, I'll say real quick, something about him, like who he is that I think makes him very interesting. And then I'll get to that second part about something he says, like his view. Um, I won't get into all the, there's a disputed thing about, you know, there's different stories about where he comes from, but here's, here's the basic thing. Here's what I think is most captivating and like attractive and kind of amazing. Honestly, Maximus was not a church leader. Maximus, by the way, if you, any his, you know, people want to look at huh. 580 to 662 is his, you know, date. So he's between the sixth and or fifth and sixth ecumenical council. He's after Justinian, another guy. He's 300 years after origin. I'm just trying to place him for some people. Uh, Augustine, he's about 200 years after. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, he he's he's a lay monk. So he's he never gets ordained. He's not a priest. He's not a bishop. He's none of that. You know. And he's just a lay monk. He's just like, there's tons of those, right? In the desert, Palestine, wherever. And what's amazing is that even though he has no official leadership uh, office in the church, his opinion was so well-respected and sought after that by the time he's 80 years old and 660, because the emperor and several bishops opposed some of the teachings that Maximus was putting forward, they actually... uh, cut out his tongue oh my gosh and they cut off his right hand so that he can no longer write his doctrines or teach with his with his lips or his mouth his doctrines uh and he's 80 years old that's why he's called a confessor because he's tortured and it leads to his death two years Mm. later 662 by the way uh origin was also tortured and similar story there ending except he's not canonized but let's just so so maximus that's that to me like that whatever i should say about the details of his life that's kind of amazing that they were still the, like the emperor of the eastern roman empire and several bishops and even probably the the pope at the time there was the one right before him was a real supporter of maximus but the one when he is tortured and killed seemingly started to waffle a bit but all, but the point is all these people were so he, he had so much respect and influence even though he had no official office that they were willing to go to those links you know to shut him up hmm. so that's maximus is sort of like yeah there's there's sort of a charism around him that's just undeniable so there's that um in terms of like things he taught i mean what he immediately gets tortured and killed for is sound sounds like a sort of you know, bizarre recondite debate about Christology, which is whether or not Christ has one or two wills, human and divine will, or one will that's sort of in some sense both at once. 
And that sounds like, you know, what in the world are we doing? Why are we debating this stuff? And actually, that was really the position that the emperor took and the people that tortured him. Look, you can think whatever you want. Just shut up about it and stop causing division over these. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, which I like to throw out at people, of course. Right. People that think like speculative theology and constructive theology are sort of like getting in the weeds. Uh, you know, I can. Uh, say, well, yeah, that you're taking the side of power, but no, anyway, <laughs> so. Um, I, I felt that a little too at me somehow, <laughs> you since are. I'm doing constructive theology, you're like, I don't know. <laughs> well, you can use that against other people that, that. Oh, literally. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. So, yeah. So I think, uh, so that, so he was, the point there is that his, and, and I should also add, because it's pretty important historically, 19 years later, at the Sixth Ecumenical Council, 19 years after Maximus's death, they actually sided with Maximus, the church did, against uh, his opponents, and that actually became dogma in the church. So um, I, I think Maximus is one of the greatest Christological thinkers that I know, at least, in, in history, and I would, I would make that broad of a claim. Um, but I think in terms of like ideas or views he might have that is that are that would strike us odd, here's one. <laughs> um, and this is sort of the core of the of my station book. Uh, Ambiguum 722 says, the word of God, very God, wills always and in all things to actualize the mystery of his incarnation. Huh. Always and in all things. So that the incarnation is not simply a one-off exceptional miracle episode in the middle of history, but is in some sense the universal principle of all creation, which 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 is why God creates it all in order to incarnate always and in all things. That I think is fairly different than the way we typically construe the creator, creature, or the God world relationship, where they're somewhat extrinsic or maybe you have room for something like a participation doctrine or like something like that, or God wills the world and it's good but because he wills it. But nevertheless, they're pretty distinct um, for Maximus. The, the very principle or reason that God created it all is actually to become what he makes. I, I typically will restate what's said and then go, is this what you're saying? But I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you, can you say that in a way, uh, I mean, I do, I have an inkling, but can you say that in a way that maybe, you know, someone who doesn't have any theological training can go, aha, that's what, that's what he's trying to say. And that's why it's important. Yeah. There's a text where, where it says, um, God became what he loved, uh, that hmm. where Maximus says that. So, so I think typically, let's just say it this way. Usually if you're reading Genesis one, let's go there, right? And you, you, you sort of just, God created the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He speaks into existence, right? I think most of us naturally have something like a furtive, even if we don't really think about it deeply, we have this image of like God's over, over here on one side. There's this maybe darkness or void. And when he speaks, things just pop up into existence over here on the other side. Right. And, and that's like God's creation. And that, that is like the image of the framework within which we then start to talk about God interacting with his, his creation of Adam and Eve with Israel, with all, right. The whole, all, all of that's tested in, in scripture. And so it's like, but it's kind of this, right. It's like God over there, God spoke you and you popped into existence like a rabbit out of a hat. And then he sort of interacts with you in different ways. And there's this sort of dramatic struggle that is history. 
Um, what I think Maximus's principle I stated earlier says is something a little more profound and yes, mysterious even, but still something that he thinks we have to hold just because of what we say of Christ is this. God doesn't make anything that he doesn't become. Hmm. So he, he so love for Maximus is such a unifying power. You might think of like the two become one flesh, something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's the model for creation. It's not God calls you up and sort of has this conversation with you like, like across the abyss. It's that there is no abyss and there's no other side of the abyss unless God crosses it himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, which, one, one, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, oh, you got it. This is, this, I think, such an important conversation. I, I don't want us to slide past it too quickly. Cause I, like, like you, Jordan, Aaron and I were both raised in restorationist churches, right? So oh. Pentecostals are restorationists. Right. I mean, and our, we're, we're just essentially one upping the Stone Campbell crowd by saying <laughs> we are the, we're the fuller restoration, right? So like the, the truest of true. Exactly. The Pentecostals love to talk about the full gospel, which is a, a kind of pretty obvious slap at the rest of the church for having a less than full gospel. <laughs> well, one of the things that goes with that kind of biblicism is a way of imagining the world in subject object difference, right? So mm-hmm. God is a subject, we're the object, we're the subject, God is the object. There's there's a, a way of it, it's it's actually I think shaped by the experience of reading the Bible. So biblicism mm-hmm. produces a certain kind of consciousness mm-hmm. in which the text is just there and you are either the writer of the reader, writer or the reader of the text. But the text kind of is it is what it is, we might say, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a certain way of making sense of the world in which relationships are always subject-object, right? And what you're talking about here, what Maximus gives us, and I think in some ways that mm-hmm. tradition to which Maximus mm-hmm. belonged gives mm-hmm. us, right? Gregory and Origen too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that that's not, God is not over against us as a thing. Right. Like mm-hmm. he's not one of the things that exists that we're in relationship with. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't relate to us in that way. Right. Mm-hmm. That but what you just said is such such an astounding claim when you give it any attention at all, that God did not make anything he does not become. Yeah. And we could it runs the other way. Nothing God has made does not become what God is. Right. Yes. And, and we don't become anything, truly become anything that God is not. Yes. Right. So just do a little more with that, like unpack that yeah. just a bit more in terms of how that, I mean, that it, it sounds like exaggeration, but it, it really does change everything. Like when you come yeah. to see that that's what's happening in Christology is that mm-hmm. the re, the creator's reality and the creature's reality are so commune, communed, infused at one that, you know, all that God is creation becomes all that creation is God wills to be. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I just love to hear you kind of work that again. Yeah. So I think like um, it is important to ground it because this is what Maximus does so well. And this is part of what makes his vision so <laughs> kind of compelling because otherwise it could just sound like, Oh, so what is this? Like some sort of new age thing or, you know, like um, he grounds it in Christology really in the incarnation and, and to take a line you just said there, Chris, and to make it concrete, it's like, we could ask this question pretty directly in the incarnation, 
um, who creates and what is, and who is created. And of course, at least with the conciliar sort of orthodox, little orthodox Christological vision, the answer is the same one who creates is created too. You can't get more subject object than that. Mm. Right. But it's not just subject and object. It's exactly that there is no subject or object that isn't simply the one word. The very one who creates in concert, right? The whole Trinitarian act of creation, like say the humanity of Christ and Mary, like get that mm-hmm. concrete, right? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. The zygote, right? <laughs> like, like let's get yeah. that. The, the, the one who makes, like metaphysically causes that humanity to be at all from nothing uh, is also the very one who so identifies himself with that humanity um, that he himself is both the cause and the effect, the right. subject and the object, the actor and the recipient or patient. Now, how is it that he can be both at once? Well, that that's going to open us up to a whole nother logic that does not typically work in the way we normally think about distinctions and similarities, unities and differences, right? Yeah. So we admit that we know that. But it is positively disclosed, and it's right there in the center of the Christian mysteries. The very one, right? Otherwise, and it really does have to be an identification, because you can't say something like, "Well, like the humanity of Christ was crucified," uh, right. because it's it's the Son of God was crucified, <laughs> right? By virtue of his humanity, but he has so identified himself with that humanity that what happens to it happens to him. Right. And that's and so what's amazing about this and where it gets really weird metaphysically and kind of fundamental is that is this last little point here. I'll add it is only when he identifies himself with his humanity that his humanity comes to be at all. That's the that's the model here. There is no humanity of Christ that isn't simply the word of God, second person to Trinity. Right. Yeah. His self-identification with the humanity is the very thing that generates it at all. And so that kind of talk about, right, no longer a subject-object divide. There's not even a subject and object without there being a more fundamental identity between the two, which is the which is the word. And so now that sounds like, whoa, okay, we're getting weird here. We got Christology, we got metaphysics and going all that. And yes, Maximus is is often or sometimes extremely dense. So this this is, you're going to run into passages. But at the same time, I want to back up for a second just to, to grab, like, you know, have a few scriptural uh, hooks we can grab onto here because what I really, another thing I love about Maximus's vision is it actually allows me to go back to scripture yeah. and read things that I glossed over kind of quickly and be like, whoa, whoa, hold on. It's kind of already said this. So Maximus, is, his whole idea about, right, that uh, he doesn't, you know, nothing that's created or God doesn't create anything doesn't become, that actually makes sense of something like, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Yep. Uh, he didn't persecute you. Hello? Did you not know that, Jesus? <laughs> it was Stephen. Right. <laughs> like, Stephen's the one who was killed. Well, there's no distinction. And after all, let's go Matthew 25, right? Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. How is it that what I do to the poor person, I'm doing to God? Is that just a poetic way to say, give money to poor people? 
Like, like, you know, is it really yeah. sermonic way to say, don't, you know, don't hoard, don't be greedy? No, I think probably, at least if we take Maximus's view, where every, like, he, he wishes to accomplish the mystery of his embodiment always and in all things. Yeah. Hmm. They are yeah. things at all only because he's trying to become what they what they are and they're right. his becoming that is them coming to be yeah that that, yeah. that that establishes a much deeper relationship between creator and creature than the subject object thing yeah so a, a few a few notes for people and then aaron uh, feel free to jump in and step us back if you want one is the in the language of hebrews jesus christ the same yesterday today and forever right or the ways in which jesus will speak about himself right before Abraham was, I am, or Abraham rejoiced to see my day. The the theophanies in the old, you know, Ezekiel's vision of God, and there's one like the Son of Man. Like what Maximus gives us is a way of talking that says, well, of course that's what you see, right? I know for me, R- Jensen was my entree mm-hmm. into, into Maximus, and, and Jensen was shaped by that way of talking because it enabled him to say things like, well, of course, the Ten Commandments were written with the hand of God because God has a hand, right? Like mm. there is, a, it's the hand of the incarnate Jesus, right? So what Jensen is doing, just to boil it down to, I think, to something close to its essence, is he's arguing that the incarnation does not fit within reality as it's constructed. Jesus does not kind of answer to the way things work. Mm-hmm. Jesus constitutes the way things work. Like things yes. work the way they work because of who Jesus is. And yes. he is the one who makes reality real. Mm-hmm. And Maximus just takes that with absolute seriousness and has the grace, as you mentioned already, to actually think through what that might mean. And it does, I think, illuminate the text broadly and deeply. I, I know one of the true mind-blowing moments for me was when I was reading J. Cameron Carter's book on race, and he has a chapter in there on Maximus, and he's quoting huge passages from Maximus. It's specifically Matthew's reading of the poor in Matthew, in which there's a line in which Maximus says, the poor man is Christ. Hmm. And then he makes this connection to Jesus promises, you know, the poor you have with you always, right? which gets read a certain way in our tradition. And then at the very end of that same gospel, he says, I am with you always. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what ties them together, and Maximus sees this, what ties them together is what Jesus says about the last judgment. What you do to the poor, you do to me. Mm-hmm. Right? He sees that in the text mm-hmm. because he's letting Jesus tell them what's true. So when Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, I am with you always, what you do to the poor, you do to me. Maximus is saying that's how reality actually works. That's that's the way things go. God doesn't just quote unquote take it personally. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens to any creature is happening to God because of mm-hmm. what has happened in Jesus Christ. And I think that it's just for me, it's impossible to overstate how fundamental that shift is and yeah. how it changes everything. Aaron, yeah, well, I can definitely see why his tongue was cut out and his uh, <laughs> hand cut off. <laughs> I, I have two two thoughts really. And one is more of a question about Maximus's work, and then the next one is really going to be about Maximus for today. The first one is, in this conversation, especially as we're relating to this idea of the constitution of all things within God, what do we do, what does Maximus do about evil? Yeah. Right? What does he do about the, the poor person who does commit 
some kind of heinous act of evil. Um, and, and yeah, just what does he do with that? Um, excellent. That's exactly the right question. And in fact, the book I had, I, so the dissertation was originally probably about two thirds of what the book is. And you would think it would mean like I'd add a few more chapters to the, I actually only added one huge chapter to the dissertation. And it really came out of that. Someone asked essentially that question at the dissertation defense. I had already planned like originally to kind of get to that. Like what about evil? Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to make this sort of like sublime view, like of creation, right? Like everything is God, like, you know, incarnate. <laughs> it's exactly the right question. Right. And in fact, it's even worse with Maximus in Maximus case, because he's actually more extreme on the fall than almost anyone. Hmm. What he, what he says three different times is that Adam fell quote at the very instant he came into being. Oh, wow. So this has been a notorious thing in Maximus scholarship. People don't, Oh, please. <laughs> uh, I don't know how she opened that door. Sorry. Uh, my do- my I wasn't sure if that we can't see. So I wasn't yeah. sure if that was a demon. If oh, that was like, right. I think yeah, it was a child. Know. It was a child. Your own interpersonal struggle that you're trying to kick out. Like, I have no idea. Ouch. Oh, uh, (laughs) no, my daughter just figured out how to pick locks. So I don't know. Did I see a demon? I don't know. Either good uh, for her or bad for you or both. both. I don't know. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Anyway, no, I'm sorry. Um, So uh, yeah, so he says that. So it's kind of been a notorious thing in Maximus scholarship and commentary because they're like, wait, he actually is saying that essentially when you look back in history, you can't see anything other than the fall whatsoever. And it's as if the, and I actually think he really means this, the very first appearance of creation is fallen from the mm-hmm. from the get-go. So all that to say, your question's not only the right one, but it's especially right for Maximus because he ups the ante even more. It's not just like it kind of went wrong after a while. It's like the very beginning is, is it's already wrong. Um, and we could get in later about why he thinks that and stuff. But just say for now, uh, so I, I added in the, the major chapter I added was it's exactly addressed to this issue. So I'll try to boil it down best I can. Um, here's here's what I'll say. This is sort of my thesis. So yeah, the thesis would be this: just because everything we experience in creation isn't yet the incarnate Word, right? Always in all things, doesn't necessarily mean that creation isn't incarnation. What it means is that everything we experience is not yet creation. Could, could we throw another word in here that might help people kind of recognize that language? But of course, we're defining it differently, but redeemed. So, yes, right. Or how about this, willed by God? Hmm. Yep. I mean, is there an, an actual origin? I already made this distinction way back in his homilies on Genesis. Not everything you experience is God's will, yeah. though everything is subject to God's providence. Right. And so that opens up this whole kind of field of thought in theology where you say, so wait, are you saying I can experience a phenomenon that is not itself willed by God? Hmm. And the answer is yes and no. (laughs) Right. It's uh, there is a core of God's will. And this is what Maximus means by the logos or logoi of all things. He calls them wills sometimes. God has a specific will for what he wants any creature to be. Right. A final perfect version of that thing or person. Um, 
And, and so, sure, the, the core of the phenomenon you might experience is God's true will, but what you act, the phenomenon itself, what appears to you, might not be God's will. And in fact, it might even be contrary to God's will, and yet you still experience it. Here's kind of a, an ascetical way or a spiritual theology way to think of it, which Maximus does. He writes chapters in this way that are more contemplative. And he's in this tradition uh, of the Desert Fathers where he'll say, for example, about pride. Pride for, for the Desert Fathers and for Maximus is not simply like, I'm really arrogant and I've got a big ego, right? Like I'm selfish. <laughs> Fundamentally, what it is first is a false picture of yourself. And what you do is you imagine yourself to be something that you're not. <laughs> and yet you live into it this image. And in fact, you, as it were, you give yourself your very essence, your, your, sorry, your very life or hypostasis in, in the Greek idiom, right? Your very person, your life, you give yourself to actualize, you might say, incarnate this false image. And so when people meet you, they don't necessarily meet the Aaron, sorry, Aaron, but they don't, right. <laughs> they don't necessarily meet the Aaron God willed and therefore created because, of course, right, true works of God or God's wills totally realized. Hmm. Um, and so and in fact, it's not, not just that you're like not yet there or something. It might even be. And this is maybe what sin and evil is. Another way of thinking of sin and evil is that it might actually be opposed to the very will of God. And yet it is a phenomenon. At one point, Maximus says that evil, as it were, is parasitically subsists in our own subsistence. Hmm. So it's not just that I think bad thoughts and I do something wrong and I go against God's law and he's mad at me or something. Right. It's, it's that I, I fundamentally misjudge the world, the true world, the way it ought to be myself, the way I ought to be God, who he really is. And then I try to give my whole life to bring into existence all of those false images Hmm. that creates a pseudo phenomenon. I mean, something, it's a phenomenon in the sense that it really appears and you have to contend with it and confession. I have to contend with it. And in prayer, I have to contend with it. And in, in escasis, fasting, ritual, sacraments, liturgy, I have to contend with all this. And part of the work of the spiritual life is destroying the false phenomena that I have a part in bringing into being, but which hmm. are not willed by God. So that's that would be kind of one way of understanding. Yeah. Yes, evil rends the world, but that doesn't tell us creation is incarnation. It says that the world you experience is not yet created. True. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one one way of getting at this is is a tradition of talking about Christ being crucified. I was reading Rahner yesterday, day before yesterday, and stumbled on this line, which I had not seen in Rahner before. That Christ is crucified in all his in all his members as long as creation is, which of course is a callback to like Pascal, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I but I think that's a callback to the language of Scripture: Christ being crucified from the foundation of the world. So I think one way of thinking about what Maximus is doing that Jordan's introducing us to is that because of God's personal identification with all things, whenever we're acting ways that are false to who we are as human beings. The whole creation pays the price for that. That's what Romans 8, I think, is about, right? That all of creation is groaning because as sons and daughters of God, we're, we're living fantasies, right? We are, we're producing idols that right. make of the earth, make of our 
environment, something false to it self, and we make of ourselves something false, and then we try to make of God something false, right? Mm -hmm. So as as the mediating creatures we are, as human beings, our distortions distort everything else, right? Mm -hmm. God is experiencing that as crucifixion in us, which mm -hmm. cuts both ways, and that it's through crucifixion that he is calling us to put to death those things, right? So when Paul talks about put to death in your members, yeah. lying and stealing and all of that, that's the ascetic life that Jordan is talking about, right? That's the take this seriously, right? Go to church, pray, like find ways, fast, receive the, the Lord's body and blood so that you can have that illusion killed in you, right? Which, but it is also means God is suffering in us and in all, all things, the rivers mm -hmm. and the birds and the ocean as much as in us until all things are set right. So I think precisely because Maximus's account is so promising, he can take the problem of evil seriously, right? So as, as Jordan said, I mean, Aaron, you're right to raise that. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason I'm convinced that Maximus is right is that he doesn't have to downplay the problem of evil in order to continue to affirm what he affirms about God. He'll, he'll let you take it as, as radically as you want to take it and say, and yet God has, we'll get that done. So I'd, I'd love to hear Jordan, your thoughts on that. I mean, this, yeah, I mean, this is uh, by the way, just to put a con like a, a text to what you're saying. And he, he says this and imagine my surprise when I'm here reading a seventh century Byzantine Greek, <laughs> uh, say in, in his work, Mystagogy, chapter 24, that God, the word, suffers in everything's sufferings proportionately to their suffering. Hmm. Not just that he can relate to you because he has suffered. That's true, of course. Right. But he is there. He is, it, it, once again, what you do to them, you do to me. And it's not just so that it's like, oh, great, now God's suffering too, so we can pull him down into our suffering and like feel better or something. It's that his suffering is fundamentally, to go back to St. Cyril, life-giving. Yes. His suffering destroys the causes of suffering in himself because, of course, his divinity is, is uh, indestructible. Hmm. So it's only when he, again, not only does he love or not only does he become what he loves, but he will destroy what has illicitly become in order to really create what he loves. Yeah. Which is me too. Mm -hmm. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, right, etc. I have to be destroyed in some sense. And no, that's not fun. That's not exciting. It's super uncomfortable and painful in a lot of ways. Reconciliation typically is. But like, um, that is my salvation. One of my favorite texts, uh, uh, Maximus is just basically giving a, a sort of short interpretation of the whole book of Jonah. And as, as church fathers like to do, they like to like pick out these like little details and ask weird questions that we, <laughs> we wouldn't normally like, what? Uh, okay. But he, he does pick up on something that actually maybe maybe somebody would ask the same question. It's not totally out there. He, he says, you know, there's a part in the, I think like chapter three or something, there's a part in the text where basically God's had enough with Nineveh, right? He's just like, I'm going to destroy it. First, it was conditional. It moves to basically an absolute. This will happen. And then, of course, we all know at the end of the book, that doesn't happen. They do repent. They sit in, you know, sackcloth and so on. And so Maximus's interlocutor, the person actually wrote to him to, to discuss this, says, how is it that God can say he is going to destroy the city, and yet the city is saved? And Maximus's answer is beautiful. He says, in truth, one in the same city 
was both destroyed and saved. And it's that same model that divine judgment destroys what I've illicitly brought into being in my own ignorance and my own vice and my own rebellion. Or if we want to make it less just personal, we can draw it out, right? The whole confluence and networks of power, the structures of oppression, the demonic sort of powers and principalities, which in concert are all realizing their own uh, delusions, you know, and reacting to other people's delusions to create these systems and structures, which are also fundamentally not God's willed creation. All of that must be destroyed, but its destruction is the precondition in a sense. Hmm. It's even the very act, the same act as its salvation, as its true creation or deification in his terms. Yeah. And this, this one point I want to say here before we leave this, I mean, I think for those who this for those whom this seems just entirely new, here, here are some ways in, not not just biblically. George MacDonald mm-hmm. absolutely gets this, right? Totally mm-hmm. gets this. And his his unspoken unspoken sermons, mm-hmm. uh, novels like Lilith or Fantasties, all of those are working out. I don't know if he had read Maximus, but he clearly had read some of the fathers in that Alexandrian tradition. And that that is a way in, right? So for those who are like completely at sea here, but you feel drawn to some of it, George MacDonald is one one boat you can catch right out on that sea. Mm-hmm. I think another way of, and, and of course through George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis does this like in Great Divorce uh, somewhat. I don't think he gets it quite as clearly as MacDonald does, but no. you can see it's influenced him, right? Like that he's, he's under the sway of MacDonald's conviction that, you know, love loves all things into being. And love will keep loving until all things are beloved and are true to, to what God has made them to be. So like that, there's a famous line, McDonald says, God is easy to please and hard to satisfy because of this very point, right? That God is easy to please. Any Anything delights God, our very being. But God will not stop being God for us until we are fully conformed to the image of the Son for our good and the delight of all things. And I think that yeah, I mean, this is this is the vision that I, long before I'd read Maximus, you know, that night, I read Lilith in one setting yeah. and in college. And I, yeah, I, I've never recovered from it because of this realization right here, right? Yeah. That this, to me, as far as I know, this is the only way credibly to face, really face evil in all of its awfulness is, is to say, well, God's not through being God yet. And all things that are happening are not God's will, but they're happening within the unfolding of God's will in the crucified one. And when everything is said and done, then not we will see that God was right all along. God will change these things, mm-hmm. right? And and this is what I found years later in Jensen, that the hope of the end, the hope of the coming of Christ is not to be rescued from the world and brought to a place where bad things don't happen. The hope is that God is a God who can make the things that have happened to be right. Like he can alter the the water of history into the wine of the kingdom. And that, of course, that's mystery, right? And in some sense, that's poetry. But any hope that's less than that, I think, is is false. And, 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 and I, at least I couldn't um, hold on to it. And I think Maximus maybe as much, if not more than anyone, gives us a way to talk about that theologically. Mm-hmm. I I agree with Lilith. Um, I think it, it 
in a different way, it really changed the way I approach scripture. Uh, mm. There's that beautiful passage about a book and a butterfly, you know, yeah. use it now in every hermeneutics class. Like you have to read this. It's required. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what I like about what we're talking about with Maximus is there is a, a tradition in Christianity that often looks at how everything else needs to be destroyed and redeemed. But from the way that you describe Maximus, is it that that's the salvation actually starts with our own, I mean, to use a word that's now kind of faux pas, our own deconstruction, right? Our own, our own kind of destroying of self to capture self. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that really is beautiful in a space and time and place that we constantly are pointing the finger at every thing else other than ourselves and saying that has to change, that has to change, or that has to change. What I want to ask, because we do need to wrap up, um, if if Maximus uh, were here today, why would the church want to cut out his tongue and cut off his hand? Uh, maybe both hands now that we've got typing, right? So uh, why would they want to do, I mean, clearly some people have been listening to this and going, sounds kind of heretical to me. Welcome to our podcast, right? Um, but why would why would they, you know, I, and I would say the evangelical church, because a lot of other traditions, you know, and we, you know, with evangelical or evangelical Pentecostal, that kind of grouping of churches, what would they really struggle with Maximus here in the last, like just two to three minutes that we really actually need to hear from Maximus to break us out of that? Well, I mean, I think probably you all are probably better situated to answer that about that tradition, but I'll throw this out there. Maybe this will what what i what is at once beautiful and compelling to me but also kind of terrifying to me uh and threatening in a way is maximus's vision of the god world relation is almost like it's like matrimony it's like god god creates a world which he fundamentally literally personally in the word in christ binds himself to that has a lot of implications and maximus for a great text on this letter to his second letter, which is one of the few translated. Um, He thinks that this is the foundation, for example, of like loving your enemies. The reason why you love your enemies or the other or someone else that you don't understand or someone that's hurt you or wronged you or whatever is because the word of God is fundamentally in them waiting to be born through them. That's the way he would put it. Hmm. Um, In other words, you don't meet anything in creation that isn't fundamentally personally identified with the word. Otherwise they wouldn't exist. Hmm. Right. So it's not just that like God liked them or likes his idea of them and hopefully they approximate to that. But insofar as they have it, you know, you can write them off easily. It's no, anything that exists is in this all together and you cannot rid yourself. Now, look, obviously there's, (laughs) there's, you can misuse that in certain ways. It's not about rushing reconciliation or or ignoring injustice or any of that. What it, what it does though, is it gives you a protology. I'm going to use that word like a, like a doctrine of creation, which is the same thing as an eschatology, the end of all things, which says eventually like something Chris said earlier, every single person, creature, being, will be made right because they're fundamentally bound to Christ. Mm. And he will, he, he 
He spares no depths whatsoever. He will be destroyed with whatever self-destruction or collective destruction uh, we bring upon ourselves or on others. He will be destroyed in that for their salvation. Hmm. And so I think that could be, you know, you start applying that concretely. That's when you would probably start to get, uh, you know, go back to your monastery and do this. We don't want to hear this in the real world. <laughs> oh, there would be there would be some tongue cutting out from that, right? <laughs> For sure. And I think I think maybe uh, I don't want to speak this without saying we're going to at least try. Maybe this would actually be a really cool conversation to actually have with you and David Bentley Hart. And what does that mean, right? Because it's so too easily pointed at and just screamed universalism you're a heretic and not really understanding kind of the complexity and the nuances so maybe we'll try to do that maybe we'll try to set it up jordan uh thanks so much for the time it's been fascinating someone in in my own kind of theological reading since i do more modern that i have not spent a lot of time with so it's been really fascinating for me hope so for our listeners before we go though uh talk about your book and how people can follow along with your writing on Maximus or any of your other work that you're doing. Uh, yeah. Make the people aware. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. This has been great. Yeah. Hopefully we can do some more. Um, uh, well, so I, I got off Twitter, so <laughs> you're a better anymore. person for it. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a stay at home dad. Uh, I have four small, uh, daughters six and under so i don't have time wow. on twitter so anyway uh that's why i'm in a garage i think um <laughs> i think uh i think uh, yeah so the book is called it's going to be coming out with the university of notre dame press it's called the whole mystery of christ creation as incarnation uh in maximus confessor hmm. uh the, the best word I have on that is 20, uh, spring 2022 in their catalog. So be on lookout for that. I do have a Facebook that I check every once in a while, so you could try that. But no, that's pretty much it. That's all I got. Well, definitely that book will be on my list for when it comes out. Um, or on that pre-list because we're friends now and there's a pre-list <laughs> yeah. of those kind of things, right? Um, hey, Jordan, again, thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on and having this discussion. I've loved it. I'm thankful that Chris invited you via the podcast to get to know you and this work here. So thanks again so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. There's, there's not too many topics that we talk about that, I mean, I like all of our topics, but there's not too many that I sometimes I like have to actually scratch my head and go, now hold on a second. And I think our conversation with Jordan was one of those where I'm like literally kind of, now that we've had this conversation, I am thinking in a lot of different ways and a lot of different kind of theological concepts and how what we talked about may actually change a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And And one that I think you and I both were kind of engaging with and I'm going to throw it out and use this 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 uh, term or, or you know a few words that's used a lot, but really not maybe used robustly. But it sounds to me like what Jordan was talking about through Maximus Confessor is a much more robust picture of what we might call the image of God mm-hmm. oh, than 
then whenever we talk about things like qualities or even if we go towards the route of going uh it's it's purpose right like we were we were destined we were purposed to be god's physical representation to creation this does something different with the image of god that seems to have so many veins throughout scripture that yeah. i would never have even considered until we had this conversation i, I don't know did did that strike you in that way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and of course, I think I was trying to get at that with my comment about this is one of the problems with biblicism is that it it builds your mind and heart to work a certain way, trains your heart and mind to work a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, here's an analogy. Like, if you were to take a book that I've written or you know, a sketch that I've drawn and to deface it in some way. Like I might take that personally, right? But it's still something I've made that's other than me, right? Right. And and you're kind of acting upon that in in, in like a form of sympathetic magic or unsympathetic magic, right? You're you're trying to harm something that I care about. But when yeah. you like attack my wife or my children, like my image is related to them in a much more intimate way. There's a lot hmm. more involved there's a lot more at stake right and i think what maximus does and maximus is not alone here i mean i think maximus just is able to take it philosophically to to greater length than most people can but i think the christian belief in the incarnation entails the conviction that god's life is what sustains every creature's being and so the flower in the field or the, the man in the street corner with the sign or the birds flying overhead or the environment itself, like all creatures exist because God's present to them and, and God wills to be right. their God. And so it's hap- it's anything we do, any violation we have against any creature is much more personal for God than I think we're used to thinking. And again, right. I think scripture says this outright, yeah. but we still, well, it's, and it's hard for us to take it seriously. It's really akin to maybe Jürgen Moltmann's panentheism, right? This kind of idea of the spirit giving life to all things and and without which, without the spirit consistently being with all things, there is no life. Yeah, right? that's right. And one of the things, that there's, this is a tension in Moltmann that I think is much clearer in Maximus. So Moltmann, his doctrine of creation... It is panentheistic in a lot of ways. I mean, that's where he uses for it. But it's also built on this notion of God's withdrawal or God's right. self-denial. So like God mm, making room yeah. for creation to be itself. Right. But what Maximus is saying is not that God withdraws in order for creation to be itself, as if, you know, God has to step away and give the stage to us. But that our life and God's life, I mean, they're mutually implicated, right? Like what's happening to us is happening to God and what's happening to God is happening to us. And I think that's, to me, it's just such so much, it's more faithful to the story of Jesus. It's more faithful to scripture. So I think they're making similar points, but Maximus, I think is, is much more about the ways in which God fills all things rather than withdraws to make room for all. Right. Right. What, I don't know. First off, I have to point out something before I ask my question, and that's you 
no one can see this because it's clearly a podcast, but you keep waving around a cross, like you're holding on to one as you're like kind yes. of working, right? This crucifix, <laughs> which is just proving how much more holy you are than me. Cause I literally have like silly putty in my hand that I actually kind of like mess oh around my God. with. We need, yeah. We need pictures of these. This is amazing. Uh, there we go. Yeah. Hold on. My, your, your de-stressor is silly putty and mine yours is, is Jesus. Crucifix. So, yeah. uh, there's, how do That's I do this? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't take a picture, but I've got a recording. We're fine. Uh, yeah, no, that's super funny. Uh, yeah, so literally mine's called um, Crazy Aaron's Thinking Putty. I think that's why my friend got it for me. He's like, you know, you think a lot and you're kind of crazy. Well, here's yeah, the thanks. point. Jesus is there to your silly putty, too. Not there we go. To the, to the crucifix. That's and exactly that brings that. us right back to how do how does this distinguish now because i'm with you right this seems much more faithful to the text to even the idea of the spirit hovering over the water as as a picture of in and through creation not just outside of it right but actually a part of this work what do we do with anyone who might kind of go you guys again are heretics uh because that's really just hinduism that you're talking about and no you're not christians you're hindu Right. Yeah. How would you maybe help people see this picture as a really distinctly Christian thing? As well, but, from our yeah, text, because right? what, what Maximus is doing is saying this is what is accomplished in Jesus, that Jesus accomplishes this. And as God in the flesh, he's the one who makes all things what they are. I mean, this is what Jordan was talking about when he said, who creates whom here? Well, Jesus, is he a creature? Yes, of course he is. He's formed in Mary's womb, but he is the creator. So he is somehow creator and created at once. Right now, of course, he's created because he's creator, but he's the kind of creator who wills to be what he's made. Right? And, right. and again, Jordan kept saying that, which is from Maximus, that God does not make anything. He does not become and nothing he makes is not meant to become what God is, right? This is what Gregory Nazianzen will say, like God becomes human in order for human beings to become God, right? Like right. that that process of tradition, theosis. That, that, exactly, the process right? of all things being brought up into the life of God. That's what's accomplished in Jesus. So what Jensen taught me is that most Christians in our world, evangelical types, actually have a, an unbaptized view of reality that they fit Jesus into. So they, they force God and Jesus and the Christian life to fit in notions of time and space and history and meaning and purpose that actually aren't shaped by the gospel. Yeah. And what Maximus is doing is insisting, no, 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 whatever we're going to say about time or space or matter, whatever we're going to say about human beings or flowers and ants and star systems, whatever we're going to say about creation has to come from what's true about Jesus. What yeah. could be more Christian than that, right? And and the, and this is a kind of side note, but the fact is evangelicals, they don't know what most of the people we're talking with, they don't know what heresy means. All they mean right. by heresy is something I've never heard of before. Right. right? Yep. But, you know, you're not, and I'm not, the magisterium, right? So Maximus is... It may be unfamiliar to us, but it's anything but pagan, and it's anything right. but unchristian. It's if if he's wrong, 
he's wrong because he misunderstands what Jesus' life means, but he's not wrong because he's looking somewhere other than Jesus for right. how to understand what's what's real. Yeah, yeah, and and kind of that that distinction maybe between Maximus and what we often, if if you're at all you know familiar, not you, but our listeners at all familiar with you know world religions, uh, you know you know Hindu in Hinduism we're all subsumed into or are in the belly of right this divine, and that's really not what Maximus is talking about at all, right? No. But it can sound it can sound similar if we're not really you know semantics matter right if we're not really particular with how we talk about this idea of incarnation of God becoming flesh in order to yeah and it, pull I flesh think it up sounds that's right I think it sounds similar when you don't know either tradition very well so right. I don't know Hinduism very well right I know Buddhism a little better but not well I know. Christianity, not only because, you know, I'm a theologian, you know, literally that's my job, but because that's the life I live. I mean, I pray as a Christian, I live as a Christian. Right. And so I think part of our problem, part of the problem in our circles, I mean, is that we don't know the Christian tradition very well. We're judging teachings by how familiar we already are with them. And that's a really bad way to make judgments because most of mm-hmm. us have been really poorly trained theologically. Like we we've been given really weak, fragmented accounts of who God is and how God relates to the world. And, you know, I know that that can be disorienting, but it's a dis- disorientation that's worth it. I mean, back to the point you made in the conversation about deconstruction. This is this is what it's for. What needs yeah. to be deconstructed is our presumption that we already kind of know what Christians believe. The fact of the matter is on any topic, right? Doctrine of God, doctrine of creation, doctrine of marriage. Most of us don't have a clue what Christians actually believe about those things. Yeah. We, what we mean by Christian beliefs is just the people I've gone to church with. What do they normally say? Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's not a representation of what the, the tradition holds. Well, I mean, that could take us into a, a place that you and I both could probably talk ad nauseum about mm-hmm. in terms of kind of... The failing of, especially the, I say especially, but it's just the one that I'm familiar with, the American church that's more in that evangelical Pentecostal streams, right? Is that we are really, really not great at being theologically formed. That's right. And we struggle because because of that, we struggle with even getting to the entrance of theological formation. That's exactly right. right. Uh, I mean, that kind of goes, harkens back to things that I heard in my younger years of you go to, you go to seminary to die, you go to public education, you know, a public university to lose your faith. Like we, that anti-intellectualism has really done us no favors in what, you know, hearing what, and I said it in our conversation with Jordan, but when you hear this idea of that deconstruction in ourselves as a part of our salvation, as a, as a, you know, we might use the word in our tradition more towards sanctification, right? Which sanctification mm-hmm. is not an easy process, right? It's no, a, that's right. it is that refined by fire, right? That, that thing of kind of like, it, it it's painful, 
it's not easy to be to be sanctified, to be made like God, to whatever your tradition says, right? Sanctification, theosis, divinization, however yeah. we want to deal with it. But when you hear that and you're at all familiar with the biblical text, there is such a resonation to go, yeah, no, that, that at first it may sound off, right? Because our theological worldview may be so kind of minimal or untrained, but when you start to reflect that on the person of Jesus, all of a sudden you go, man, that sounds right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that well, resonates much more clearly with the person of Jesus than this idea of let's point the finger at all the other things that need to be fixed within the world. Well, I mean, yeah, I just pay attention to what came of our discussion today, the focus on Jesus, the focus on scripture and how it illuminates what scripture has always been saying, the, the turning to the coming of Jesus and the judgment of God, the the ways in which it encourages prayer and doing right by our neighbor. Okay. If heresy leads me to Jesus, hope in the judgment of God, attention to scripture and (laughs) call to do right by my neighbor, then sign me up for heresy every single time. right? Right. Like in some ways, just because it's, these are ideas that are new to us or that strike us as unfamiliar or resonate in ways we've been warned against, just pay attention to where does it take you? Like we, these conversations didn't lead us away from scripture or away from right. Jesus or away from hope in God, just the opposite, right? Right. Heresy doesn't lead you into a life of prayer, sanctification, like you know, where we were talking about with Jordan and you just now coming again back to this, putting to death the sin that is in you. I mean, that's not what heresy does. It doesn't no. lead you to a place of deeper devotion, and allegiance right. to Jesus and care for your neighbor. So, you know, people need to realize that, yeah, these are hard concepts. And our, like you said, our anti-intellectualism, we're paying a price for it in that we don't, we don't have the formation right. to grasp some of this like we need to. But hopefully we still have the moral wherewithal to realize, okay, but it is a good thing that we're talking about Jesus and scripture and prayer and faith and hope in the judgment of God and love for our neighbor, like those things tell the tale. That's the fruit that right. is the work of the truth in us. And so I, I, I would hope that people would notice that and trust and, and that. that. And that kind of, you know, hearing you speak about that makes me remember the conversation that you and I had after um, our podcast with Andrew Williams. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't heard that or you stopped before you got to Chris and I's extrapolation afterwards, you know, when we're talking about this and we're talking about the kind of the hope filled narrative, even if it still is a hope filled narrative of it might be painful, it might actually hurt. It might cause me to put to death some things. There's a hope filled narrative that's pointed towards Christ. That makes my mind change more than any proof texting that someone can give me of scripture. And and that's something too, I want to point out about that conversation, even, even though it was so kind of focused on the person of Christ, on scripture, on kind of reflection of this idea, there wasn't really proof texting, right? Like we're not just going, okay, I'm going to grab this one and I'm going to grab this one and I'm going to grab this one. And now I'm going to build something for you. Right. It was more of the kind of reflecting back onto scripture, uh, these ideas, right. 
And that's so hard too within our, our kind of Western church culture is to recognize the difference between proof texting, right? Just grabbing something to make an argument versus the reflection of the story of scripture and how that's supposed to form us and change us. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's because one of the problems with proof texting is that you're only able to recognize the scriptures that mirror back to you what you already believe. Right. So the, the problem with proof texting is that you're using the text to prove that you're right. 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 And that is never the way, like that kind of reading can never be sanctifying. That kind of reading can never be by definition. It can't change you because you're using scripture to show that you don't need to be changed. Right. right. Others need to be changed. And that, I think that should tell you, again, that's the fruit of it. The fruit of that way of imagining scripture is you figured it out. Now you don't want to ever change again. You want to show everyone else what you figured out. And that should tell you a lot about what that way of imagining scripture is and what, because the fruit of it is bad, right? The fruit of it is pride and presumption and arrogance and pretension all of that marks of the flesh, not of the spirit. And so I think, right. You know, I hope again, I hope people hear that too, see that too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, we, I don't think in, in this kind of pontification, I, I don't think our culture is getting going to get any better. I, I don't even say I don't think. I, I just, you know, I hate to use this word no, but I just, you know, I, I know that our culture is not going to get better by the continuation of culture wars, of the church and an us versus them mentality in a proving right versus being being deconstructed in our wrongness, right? Well, it's, it's not going to change. And yet we keep beating our head against the wall, doing the same things over again, hoping that we might have an effect on culture that we clearly keep not having. Right. And well, yeah, that's right. I I think in some ways though, I mean, this would take us far afield here, but I, in some ways, I don't know that we still even have any hope of actually changing the culture. I think in some ways, and maybe this is too cynical (laughs) on my part, but let's do it. I'm for it. I think it's one thing to engage in culture wars when you still, and I don't even think hope is the right word because I think hope for Christians is a theological virtue. And most of what we're talking about here is just wishes, what you wish the world would be. Right. Right. But using hope in that kind of informal, non-theological sense, I think it's one thing to engage in the culture wars in hopes of actually bettering the world. You know, a kind of sincere but misguided effort to, to bring about justice. I think that most of us now are engaged in the culture wars out of a kind of stubborn resentment Hmm. for our enemies and letting them know that we will not give them the benefit of of our agreement, right? That Hmm. no matter what happens in the world, we're going to go down fighting. Like we're going to, we're going to make, right. And the other thing is, I think it is meant to be a controlling mechanism within our own circles. So I think, and again, maybe I'm being too cynical, but it feels to me that now mostly evangelicals engage in the culture wars, not because they actually have a vision for society, 
Hmm. You know, because they mm-hmm. they hate their enemies on the other side of the culture wars, and they want to at least control their territory. So it can make their enemies miserable and force in their own souls the, what what they want. That's as much as they can hope yeah. for. And and that that is again agreed, probably too cynical, but <laughs> I think um, that's what it feels like to me. No, and and I'm I'm with you. I. I'm with you in the sense that I think fear, anger, resentment, and maybe even hate are far more the driving forces of what the church does than love and care, right? And that is me being cynical as well there. And you've just listened to Aaron and Chris's cynical session for the past five (laughs) minutes. And yet we still love that thing. Even when we find it, that thing, AKA the mm-hmm. church being misguided in, in a space, right? Like, and I think that's, that's part of that part of another one of those conversations we keep having and saying, we can't just go the opposite direction and point the finger and then go, but now we don't like you or now right. we are angry at you. And now, you know, there's that, that I don't want to say healthy I always call it kind of difference between skepticism and cynicism, right? That healthy skepticism to be able to point out our own flaws while still loving that thing. Well, it's you know, it's something you said, you know, about attend to yourself, right? Like there's plenty to put to death in you. Yeah. You don't have to burn the world down around you. I, I think another thing is a lot of quote unquote ex-evangelical types, they're no more thoughtful in their critique than they were in their affirmation, right? Mm-hmm. That they're, for whatever reason, their minds have changed, but they're not, they've not matured as persons. They've not like learned to see the world more truthfully they just see different things now but they're just as fundamentalistic just as oppressive and domineering as they were when they were you know john piper john MacArthur followers right so it's that's part of our problem too is that in these culture wars sometimes it doesn't even matter which side you're on just as long as you're getting to hurt somebody you know Mm. and Mm -hmm. we've we've got to get out of that altogether right like out yeah. of that exchange altogether you know the point here is not yeah i mean it, yeah. it's 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 a it's death dealing it's dehumanizing but the answer is not some kind of middle way niceness either like the answer is get serious about your own mm-hmm. life right like like become a person of prayer and meditation and study like give yourself 10 years to learn something before you talk about it. Yeah. Uh, like, like that kind of discipline. Back to real spiritual formation, right? Absolutely. Not spiritual formation of you go to church once a week, you read your Bible every day. You might read your Bible every day, but just because you do doesn't mean you're being formed by it. Right. That's exactly right. And, I, and I do think, you know, again, not to proof text, but to resonate with what Maximus was saying. Jordan was kind of helping us understand Maximus, what we've been talking about. That that very Jesus statement of the 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 log in your own eye, the beam Absolutely. in your own eye, right? First and foremost. Um, and if we could just do that, we'd be much better off. Hey, That's Chris, appreciate it, man. Man, thank you. I enjoy it uh, as always. Always love our conversations, especially because we can go from, you know, talking about big concepts to being salty to coming back in love and then being salty again. And I think we should have a 
you know, a minute of cynicism in every episode. Like here's, here's mm. our 60 seconds of cynicism. And now we're back to, I'm going to have to ask, um, um, our editor be like, can you put like a, a warning, like a flashing, like here comes yeah. his name's Jackson. Right? For, hey Jackson, yeah. throw in a little like robot saying cynicism in it. Right. And here we go. Yeah. Well, I thought, I thought you were going to say is we need to get a sponsor for our cynicism minute. Like oh. we need to get somebody to, to brand it. Like, uh, uh, yeah, you've heard it here first. If uh, anyone wants to sponsor <laughs> our uh, cynicism minute, we'll even make it five minutes. Sure, Absolutely. you want to yeah, sponsor yeah. it? Well, yeah. yeah, well, you can uh, contact me. And uh, I mean, what is cynicism if not like you know looking for filthy lucre at every turn? So anyone who <laughs> give us money for it, we'll take it. Then we'll become cynics of ourselves. That's exactly. Uh, Perfect. Hey, Chris, again, appreciate it, man. Looking forward to the next time. Uh, for everyone hearing this podcast, uh, you know, know we're going to have a, a week or two. We might have some replays. We're, we might have a couple weeks off, not because we don't want to be with you or not because we're not still recording, but our editor, the person who so graciously does this work for Everyday Theology, Jackson, is getting married uh, at the end of the month that we're recording this in. So big shout out to him. Thanks so much, Jackson, for all of your work. Go get married. Have a good honeymoon. Don't think about us. Um, yeah, don't be cynical. And, and don't be cynical. I don't. I don't think Jackson. Uh, maybe. I mean, we we all have our own. Yeah. I mean, who's not at some point, right? Yeah. Hey, Chris, for the probably the third time because I keep giving a false ending and everyone's hating me up for it. Thanks again. <laughs> we'll chat soon. Uh, we'll hopefully be with you back soon.